You're listening to an encore presentation of Manson Mitchell. Come on, Howard. The odds of us picking up girls in a bar are practically zero. Oh, really? Are you familiar with the Drake equation? The one that estimates the odds of making contact with extraterrestrials by calculating the product of an increasingly restrictive series of fractional values, such as those stars of planets and those planets likely to develop life. N equals R times FP times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. It's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF, I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Happy to be there. Glad you're with us. And as always of a Friday, glad to be working with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you doing today, sir? Doing awesome to my favorite Floridians and uh, post uh, St. Patrick's Day. I hope you guys had a good one yesterday. I have no Irish in me and I wore some green and Gary has some kind of Irish in him and he wore no green. <laughs> okay, his, some his, kind. <laughs> his, his, his family is Ulster Scots, hmm. which means they were Scottish and they moved up to Ireland. Northern yeah. Ireland. And as long as you swore fealty to the crown, you could practice your Catholicism and nobody would give you a hard time about it. <laughs> so I didn't wear green. I haven't for years. And it's been years since I got pinched. I can't even invite it anymore. That's what age does to you. I don't know about that one. <laughs> Maybe you should just try a little harder. That's right. That'd be a good idea. I'll tell you who should have tried harder. Right. A couple of teams I can think oh. of at the big dance, the NC2A men's national championship tournament basketball, baby. We watched two Stunning. games yesterday. Two games were, that were upsets. Oh, Two and, games where the <laughs> underdog won, and we were just having a good time. And one of them is one for the ages. I couldn't believe that. Went to overtime. Saint, lowly St. Petersburg. First, the St. Peter's, Peter's University. St. Peter's, right. Peter's. Tiny Catholic school. First win in the history of the tournament for that school. And what a team to beat. Basketball royalty. They beat Kentucky. Yeah. It and was, if you know about the seeds, yeah. St. Peter's came in at number 15 seed, which means you live on the other side of the tracks yep. against the number two seed in that bracket, and they beat Kentucky. That is seismic. That's what's great about the March Madness, you know, hype every year. There's always some offset, you know, major upset or like a one and two teams going back and forth. But Kentucky in most people's brackets, I will say most. Had at least going to the final four or to win it. Like Dickie V, you know, Dick Vitale. He had him winning it and he's out. Unbelievable, baby. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Oh my God. Dixon. Oh my God. <laughs> he's a diaper dandy. <laughs> but uh, to come back. He lives. Right. By the way, Dick Vitale lives only several miles away from us. Oh. And I keep hoping to run into him because I want to talk to him about college basketball. He's a legend in his own mind and is in his own right. He's also to this point in remission. He had a nasty bout with cancer, yes. but he mm -hmm. is rebounding, pardon the pun, and we <laughs> wish him the very best. Very true. Oh, real fast, though, to give our credit to our local uh, folks, you know, Gonzaga, they're still in it. So, Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. That's my team in this tournament. Mm -hmm. I want them to finally reach the summit. 
Everyone They've lost does. in the final, yeah. but I want them to win that sucker. Everyone does. Maybe it's this year. Oh, I hope so. That would be a beautiful thing. Today, we will be talking about succeeding when the odds are not in your favor. Ah! And that's a beautiful thing. And that's a beautiful Why thing. Why that smacks of modern positivity. It does. And our guest this hour, Richard Spitzer, he has over 50 years of experience in communications and behavioral research and was executive vice president of one of the world's largest marketing research firms. After retirement, Rich developed new methods for macro trend analytics. We'll find out what that means, but faced challenges in achieving some new goals for himself. He became interested in applying the new fields of positive psychology and patterns of success in the information intense world. Rich applied his research expertise to find practical modern methods for successfully using positivity to achieve personal and business goals. One goal was to write about trends and personal change issues, and he has now published three previous books. The one I'm holding in my hand is called Modern Positivity. There will always be success stories. The positivity formula can increase your probability of being among them. We talked to Rich a couple of years ago about manifesting, and we are happy to have him back once again. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Rich Spitzer. Thank you, Suzanne and Gary, for having me back. I look forward to it. One of the things that I noticed, not only in your bio, but in reading the book, was that you yourself did an extensive amount of research to design your program. And I said to Gary just this morning, Rich actually used his entire body of his professional career to put this together. It was in the background. So what was the process you used to arrive at your conclusions? What were some of those elements? Um, You know, uh, to oversimplify and briefly, yes, I spent, you know, 50 plus years doing research for all kinds of companies from social, economic, political, and, you know, I paid attention to what I was doing. Uh, There are patterns of information that you can begin to correlate with uh, successful outcomes. So when I got interested in this whole area of self-help, how to succeed after having read a lot of books, and it really started after I retired, like, how do I achieve my goals? I realized this is another research project. And I applied the same ideas, like, what are my objectives? What's my method? And I did uh, the usual but extensive range of things. One, I read everything I could about what's been done before. And not just, you know, popular psychology or professional, but, you know, there's historical wisdom that goes back thousands of years. You know, people 3,000 years ago were saying, you know, be careful what you think it might come true. So we have our historical evidence, observational research, reading professional literature. Um, But one of the interesting things I did also is I reassessed many people I knew over the years. People I would say, oh, they work harder, they work smarter. How did they achieve their goals? And I realized sometimes I did not give people enough credit for the driving force of how they succeeded. So I looked for a common thread and one of those was always, you know, you have to have belief, confidence, uh, a positive outlook that you can succeed. And one of the things that has always struck me, whether it's uh, an athlete achieving an award or Academy Awards, 
you know, people who, who succeed always say, someone told me I could believe in myself, have confidence, be positive, persevere. And so this triggered the thought, like, is there a fundamental premise of what drives success, how you achieve your goals? Not just being a star, but you want to be happiness, economic, start a business, complete school. Are there some common factors? So it all came down to the common thread is, you know, look on the bright side, walk on the sunny side of the street. Bing Crosby in the 1940s said, accentuate the positive. There was a common thread of be positive. But what was interesting in all this research is that it's be positive, be more positive, is probably one of the most widely advised but rarely explained pieces of advice. And trying not to do what everybody else did, but narrowing it down to this one topic. Someone tells me to be more positive. Uh, be positive most of the time. Uh, what, what is that number? How will I know it? If I'm not there, how do I change it? So I rarely found any reference to what being more positive meant in a quantitative term. So that's where I started the research to try and find some commonality, but also some of say math-based uh, uh, foundation for how we can assess, measure, and get feedback on are we positive most of the time? Rich, I think I'm hearing you say that as a matter of principle, you avoid being a purveyor of Pollyanna nostrums. Uh, you want to know if it follows the science and the science fulfills the principle behind the success stories that you talk about in your book. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, you're there. that's one half the equation. The other is, is it common sense? You know, all the original scientists, all the original psychologists, they didn't do clinical control tests. They were shrewd observers, you know, of the so-called human condition. They looked at patterns of behavior and relationships. And then the science you, you, you just described evolved out of how do we quantify these qualitative observations? So I wanted to blend the two. What can we uh, rely on statistically that is really based in common sense observation? You know, just from a math perspective, one of the things that really frustrated me is like be positive most of the time. And I found literally a handful of references. And yet, you know, you've had people on talk about quantum physics and quantum thinking. And the reality is we can talk about a galaxy 30,000 light years away that's moving at a distance of a million miles a second, uh, 6.7 billion years old. We know these hard numbers. If I ask you what is being positive most of the time, people say, well, you'll know it when you get there. So uh, I had to find some way to bridge this gap in uh, a quantitative explanation. And the reality is I did it for myself as well as you know, for, for professional interests. Before we give out the answer to that question and go a little deeper, there's a couple of other areas I'd like to tack at here. And that is because the positivity is such an important part of success. There's, there's two things I want you to talk about. And one is the difference between a positive person and, and having a positive goal. And the other is this idea about negative thinking having far more power than positive thinking and why that is the way that is. Okay. You get those two things? <laughs> okay. so let me start with the second one. 
All right. It's well established that humans have a, a negativity bias. You know, sociologically, anthropologically, it's, it's part of our survival mechanism. You know, in some ancient times, you're going out looking for food. You should be cautious walking into a dark cave where you become the food. So being uh, cautious, fearful, doubtful is part of our mechanism. Fast forward, you know, 200,000 years, we still have a lot of this negativity bias, but most of what uh, we encounter is, is not a dark cave. It's, a, you know, it's the darkness in the caves we make for ourselves. And there's a lot of research on this. There's some uh, uh, psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, who wrote a lot about our negativity bias and how it informs our decisions and risks. So uh, it's something we are built with, but we're not really trained to deal with it as we are with many other things in life. And then uh, relating that to the first part of your question, being positive about a goal versus being a positive outlook. If you can be born as an optimistic person and have that spill over into everything you do, that's great. And there are people like that. We see it you know, from early childhood. But a lot of people, and this came back to some of my reassessments of people I've known, people who could have been grumpy, they could have been obnoxious, they could have been uh, all kinds of things that maybe were not pleasant, but they were committed to their goals. They absolutely believed they were going to succeed. They did what was necessary. Uh, and it wasn't just having positive thoughts. It was, they were adaptable, they were resilient, they just perseverance, persistence, and they were positive, I can do this. Now, if that spills over into your rest of your life, that's great and vice versa. But that was one of the things that, you know, in the beginning I felt, well, I'm not that, you know, outgoing and positive a person in general, but, you know, if I get a hold of a goal, I'm going to stick with it. And in the beginning, I confused that you had to be both. But I realized, and it's been supported by a lot of research, that's not the case. Uh, so you can learn to be positive, but you can't necessarily change your personality in total. You make a good distinction there, Rich, and, and one that I, I spent some time, um, you know, really thinking about is that you can be uh, born very positively and perhaps in your early childhood that was reinforced by your uh, parents and peers and siblings so that you have this this attitude of life is really for me. It does not guarantee that you're going to succeed at your goals because it isn't only about being a positive person. And you, you're very clear about that in the book. And then as you, as you just said, you can be a much more negative person and still achieve your goals because you're being positive about your goal. And I thought that was a very interesting um, dichotomy there with the difference between being a positive person and having a positive uh, about a goal, about a specific thing. And, and so I, I thought, you know, that I have not heard that before. And, and so I thought that was a very good distinction to be made. Yeah, I didn't want to, you know, you know, overreach and get into the fields of, you know, uh, psychology. I mean, you know, I mean, psychology has been around for a long time, but it's only in the last 30 years that the field of positive psychology, as it's now called, it, was really uh, started by, uh, among others, you know, Martin Seligman and cognitive behavior, where, you know, get rid of irrational thoughts, get rid of catastrophizing. And all the psychology is focused on, um, you know, the abnormalities, because, you know, it's been around for a long time. And Seligman and others said, you know, let's focus on what's good 
what capabilities you have. You know, we're taught to wash our hands, to be polite, to show up at work on time. We're never really educated or informed about what are our, our positive thinking capabilities. You know, and I want one other thing to clarify. It's not just positive thinking. It's not just a positive thought. It's the, the self-talk we have. A thought is a thought. It's fleeting. But string together a lot of negative thoughts, and you can have a negative conversation. And I believe that's where, you know, the real negative and the harmful effects come. It's the self-talk. It's not a, a thought by itself. You have too many of those negative thoughts. That's when you need to, to delve into what are the causes of that. Gary, Gary, Oh, Gary. yeah, this is so great, Rich. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for going in that direction. There, whenever we get into this subject matter, I always take a moment to say my life has been appreciably enhanced by, to whatever degree, mastering, and I'm no master of it, I wish, there, but by seeking to master principles of what is known as cognitive behavior therapy, I always have to pay homage to the godfather of the semantic therapies, the sainted, though he was an atheist, the sainted Dr. Albert Ellis. I've got a shelf of his books at home. I am a huge fan of Albert Ellis. I quote him all the time. And you brought up one of his favorite words. I believe he coined it. And that is catastrophizing. What does that mean as a practical matter? Rich, I'd love to hear from you on this. What it means to me is you take the proverbial molehill and you turn it into a mountain, or if you're really good at catastrophizing, you turn the molehill into Mount Everest. Right. Well, this is a, interesting you brought this up. I was working recently with a mental health clinic here in Chicago. It was interested in my program. Uh, the lead person there studied with Albert Ellis, uh, Albert Ellis of Columbia. He's a leading practitioner of, you know, his particular brand, REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. And it is about, we have irrational thoughts for whatever reasons, this normal survival bias. So how do you eliminate the, the uh, unnecessary leaps of imagination that always looks for the worst possible outcome, attributes uh, uh, negatives, I think one of the examples he uses in one of his writings is that I, I'm going to ask somebody for a date, but I'm not really going to do it because I'm sure they'll reject me because I don't look right or my hair is wrong. So we begin to project these imaginary outcomes to things we haven't even done yet or exposed. So that's you know, one you know, mild form of catastrophizing. We always look for the worst possible outcomes, but where does that come from? The interesting thing about uh, this cognitive is that uh, you know, I would stay in private. I try to pick up where some of it leaves off. Uh, I met with some people at this group a couple of weeks ago to deal with a lot of serious uh, cognitive disorder patient population. And one of their biggest issues is that uh, people will not engage in the therapy. They're not comfortable with going through all these esoteric assessments and so on. And, you know, I'm trying to bring in a, a method that uh, instead says, Here's a new way to get people engaged, which is why I have my target of 68% positivity. And I have this scorecard because one of the, the flaws in these cognitive behaviors, having done it myself, is they kind of leave you on your own. I want to know what I'm thinking. Uh, is my thinking changing? Are the things I'm doing to change my thinking working? And how do I get feedback? 
and not once every two weeks. So I tried to develop some tools that would answer those questions in, in a practical everyday way. So, you know, the cognitive therapies, the RMBT uh, have made a lot of progress, have been very successful, but, you know, it's all relatively new. So what's the next stage? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to add something to this you know, body of knowledge about people need something that's familiar, gives them feedback, uh, they can use 24 seven, uh, and that's in some common sense language and, and measurement. Speaking of measurement, thank you for that opening, Rich. I'd like to go back to Dr. Ellis to a time when he was not yet Dr. Ellis. Al young Albert Ellis used to hang out at the Bronx Botanical Garden. He thought it would be a good place to meet women. And it was, maybe it still is. When Ellis was there, this was his experience as near I can recollect it. He decided he was going to force himself being by nature painfully shy for being a world famous psychotherapist who became known as quite a character. He was painfully shy as a young man. He approached 18 women at the Bronx Botanical Garden, 18 women who shot him down real quick before he got one woman to agree to a date. And you know what happened? She stood him up. <laughs> now, I don't know how the average person would even show their face after something like that. That might just sink your boat, as it were, if you had that kind of failure. But being the uh, persevering sort, Albert Ellis kept going at the Bronx Botanical Garden and elsewhere. And ultimately, he became internationally renowned. He invented a therapy, spawned the cognitive behavior therapy movement, inspired generations of people to study this and get their PhDs in CBT or REBT. And if you give me enough time, I'll come up with more letters. But the bottom line is Albert Ellis enjoyed a rich, satisfying love life. And he did so because he refused to catastrophize. He knew and often told people, if you have nothing else, you'll dig this, Rich. If you have nothing else going for you, eventually and ultimately, the law of averages alone will bring you success. Because anybody who makes an honest attempt after attempt after attempt will succeed sometime. Is that how you see it? Exactly. No, you just got to the heart of everything in two ways. One is, let's blend some psychologies here. One is you about, you know, you really want to achieve this. His purpose was to get a date. You know, I'm sure you remember Victor Frankel. Yes. Uh, started logotherapy. You know, so he was really, you know, because of his horrible experiences, you know, said you had to have hope, you had to have purpose. So, you know, I had like in the book, there's the four Ps. You must have a purpose that you're going after that you really believe in. And Frankel was a big proponent of that. Then you get to Ellis and uh, Beck and uh, Seligman, and it all comes down to you, the other piece, you need persistence. You have to keep going because a lot of people give up. So just by default, along the way, a lot of people give up, you increase your chances of succeeding. Then you need this positivity. You put them all together and you get to the heart of you know what my take is, you increase your probability of success. Like you said, the law of chances. So that's why, you know, maybe that's a segue into my target for positivity. 
that you have to be 68% positive about your goal in order to enter this success zone. Success is not guaranteed. If you can be positive 68% of the time, you've increased your probability. Why did I pick that number? Were you going to ask me that question? <laughs> uh, I, I was <laughs> we going were. to, How even after? after the break, we're going to take, but why don't we have a few minutes here? 68%, yeah. why is that so significant? Fire away. Because I look for some established mathematical principle, I'm not going to invent something, that describes the natural outcome of all behaviors. We've all seen the bell-shaped curve. So your audience is listening, but you know, you've seen the bell-shaped curve. Right. The normal distribution. That came about because it described how things fall out in natural life. Some will be wildly successful, some will be total failures, but most things happen in the middle. Now, the next step is people say to be positive most of the time. Well, that means it's at least 51%. So that's easy. But I can't believe it has to be 100%, although a lot of the popular psychology says, gives that impression. So it's somewhere in the middle. So somewhere in the middle between 51 and 100, I said, aha, the normal distribution. I've been working with that for 50 years to explain if 1,000 people are going to go out and try something, how is that, those outcomes going to be distributed? Well, I could show you many more charts that your audience can't see, whether it's your, the, the size of shoe a person wears, pizza delivery times, or batting averages and home runs, you'll see largely normal distributions that when people try things, some will succeed, some will fail. But as you said, if you keep going at it, most people will achieve a level of success in the middle. Now, here's the catch. Uh, and you maybe you've read this or seen this, they've done research like how many thoughts we have a day, you know, 50,000, 67, 70, 80,000 thoughts a day, people say we have. And then they go on to add, and most of those are the same thoughts we had the day before, and most of them, 70, 80% are negative, fearful, or doubtful. So if you are dominated by 50, 60,000 negative or doubtful thoughts a day, how is that going to support your quest to achieve something? I've never seen a study that said negative thinking will help you achieve your goal. It's always positive. So if we are predominantly negative creatures because of our survival mechanism, and if you measure it, as I did in my own scorecard, how do I shift from 60 or 70% negative to 60 or 70% positive? How do I just nudge my thinking just a little bit to get to the starting point? Now, maybe it's not 68, maybe it's 62 or 71. You know, it's hard to do a clinical test like that, but that's a starting point. Let's take some established statistical measure of probability. If you can get there, let's see what happens. I love that. And it's the open-mindedness of asking a question like, let's see what happens, what will happen. That's called experience. Experience and experimenting. Why don't we go ahead and take our break, Gary? This is great stuff Richard Spitzer is bringing to us, and we're going to follow through on the implications of SAME after a short break. Give us a couple of minutes. We're talking about positivity, not Pollyanna style, not fluffing and puffing you up. No magical thinking. No magical thinking. This is the stuff that helps you make your life work better. What more do you want for free on a Friday morning listening to the radio? I am Gary Mance. The lady across from me is Suzanne Mitchell. Our honored guest of the hour, Richard Spitzer, is going to have more to say about modern positivity. Nice little subtitle here, too. 
There will always be success stories. And I ask, why can't your success story be one of them? Stick with us. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes right here at the epicenter of positive thought in Seattle, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to an encore presentation of Manson Mitchell. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Richard Spitzer, author of Modern Positivity. Your book is brand new, Rich. And if people want to get your book or connect with you, uh, is, do you have a website? Is there something that you can share with our listeners where they can avail themselves of this information? Absolutely. Well, the book and the workbook are available on Amazon, of course. Uh, they're also available through my website called modernpositivity.com. Spelled just the way it sounds, modernpositivity.com. Uh, there's also the called the Positivity Thought Scorecard, which is really the unique benchmark of how to keep track. That's only available at the website because Amazon won't sell digital downloads. But uh, they're all available there for a very modest cost because I spent a lot of money on uh, things that uh, were interesting, but not necessarily useful. So uh, let's get it out there to as many people as possible. Excellent. Thank you. Modernpositivity.com. Excellent. And speaking of modern, you it's, wanted to talk about leading up to modern. That's right, Suzanne. Yes, thank you. Modern positivity. There will always be success stories. 
the positivity formula can increase your probability of being among them. That is exciting. A lot of us live in our heads and we wonder how to turn this into positive experiences to get more joy out of living, more success, however we define it. Rich, let me ask you, if you would, sir, take us along a, a rather loose trajectory as time allows about where positive thinking as a social phenomenon, as, as a thought experiment began and where did it go? Did it perhaps in your view, and you'd be instructing me, I don't know, but as we, you know, I go back to Norman Vincent Peale. I go back to Dale Carnegie, for example, brilliant gentleman who really caught something. To me, it's like they caught lightning in a bottle, but they went through a lot in order to get to the place where they could catch that lightning and then share the light with others. What in your view is the trajectory of positive thinking? And was there a time when it veered off into less than useful byways before being brought back into the mainstream most usefully. Okay, very loose. Okay. I mean, you go back to the ancient Greek and Chinese philosophers, uh, Lao Tzu, I Ching, uh, about the power of our thoughts. Be careful what you say. You know, Buddha said, you know, whatever you say becomes your reality. Uh, so control what you say. So from the, you know, the Stoic philosophers, they all observe the nature of our thoughts and our words and how it affects our choices and behaviors. Uh, in the 18th century, in particular, a lot of the European philosophers talked about, you know, uh, mastering our thoughts, mastering our soul. Uh, you get into the 19th century, 20th century. I mean, what comes to mind is a poem called Invictus by, uh, uh, I think his name was Henley. You know, one of his things, one of his, the lines of poems, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, whatever darkness is out there, it's up to you to persevere and get through it. Uh, it really became more widespread, you know, along with communications in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was called the New Thought Movement. Uh, there was a James Allen, there was Florence Shin, there was uh, so many people who became, uh, a, they were their predecessors to uh, Napoleon Hill and Norman Vincent Peale that, you know, we have God-given, uh, it was much more religious-oriented, you know, abilities to be in control of our destiny, our thoughts, our abilities, uh, but we have to learn to master it. And, uh, you know, then it evolved into, you know, jumping ahead, you know, through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, uh, Earl Nightingale, very popular in the 50s, uh, reread some of his work. Most of these people acknowledge they build on others, I reread some of it recently, Earl Nightingale. He builds on all these things. He says, it's all about your attitude, in which case the attitude had to be positive. Uh, that was his secret of success in the most effective salespeople. He was oriented like that, like a W. Clement Stone. You talk about um, uh, Dale Carnegie. So, and then you get the 60s, 70s, uh, Wayne Dyer came out. He became one of the great popularizers of of uh, manifest your destiny. You are what you think. You'll see it when you believe it. Uh, and so on. Tony Robbins, uh, Bob Proctor, Jack Canfield, they have huge businesses. And this has persisted and grown because there's a, a human need to, I want to find out how I can achieve something that I see, that others have achieved, that I can imagine. But where I think you said where it's gone off the rails is it maybe in over the last 20 years, 30 years, 
the books, and I have all kinds of graphics of this, Get Rich Overnight, How to Become a Multimillionaire, How to Find Happiness. There were these, you know, in, you read, you know, 352 pages of anecdotes, and I wind up with 352 pages of anecdotes and not a lot of practical guidance. So it became commercialized like everything else. So there's a lot of rightful skepticism. So I tried to avoid, like say, the overpromises. At the clinic I mentioned, uh, they said, well, is this going to be effective for everybody? I said, no, it's probably going to be effective for 68% of the people, you know, as a starting point. Some people will be immediately latch on to these concepts. Some people are, you know, unfortunately never going to connect. So, you know, it's always about you say, on average, how are things going to work out? So with Martin Seligman and popular psychology and the next version of cognitive, you know, I think there are, you know, there's going to be another wave of practical, common sense, uh, cognitive type therapy where that you need measurement. You know, Albert, uh, Edward Deming, who's the father of modern quality control and Six Sigma, I think his words were, you can't change what you can't measure. And a lot of the modern practices don't give you a mechanism for measuring, nor a discipline to change after you've measured it. Uh, so that's what you said in the beginning, I try to apply some of the, the quantitative aspects to a largely qualitative issue, you know, uh, but um, it's a human, this has been persistent throughout human writing since the beginning of recorded history. We are what we think, so how do we change what we think? We have this trajectory of people who recognize the benefits of positivity and how people can get there. And then it, it seems as though the other side, negativity, it's interesting in your book, you say negativity is more believable. So when, when you have a goal in mind, uh, a, a new house, a new relationship, a new job, you know, whatever that goal might be, you, you think about it, you say, yeah, you know, I'd like to get a, a mate, or I'd like to get a new place to live, I'd like to, and it's, it's like a wish, or it's a desire. But when you think about the negative side of that, well, you know, that's too hard. We've had COVID. I can't go out. It's hard to meet people. You know, my job really isn't paying enough money for me to be able to afford a place. Negativity has such a big hold on us because it somehow seems more logical where the positivity does have a tendency to seem more unbelievable. So you address that in the book. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, positivity is a goal. It's recognized, but it's definitely harder. Okay, so let's set aside it's our- It's harder. It's yeah. harder, yeah. Well, let's set aside our uh, anthropological version of we have a negativity bias. One of the problems with negativity today, I don't know how it was 300 years ago, is that it's not just a negative thought. Negativity, from my observations and research and reading, is that it's not just a negative thought. It, um, you can say, it leads to catastrophe, you know, catastrophizing. It leads to imagining uh, terrible outcomes. It makes you wonder, how am I going to get out of that problem? But even more, uh, probably more detrimental is it closes you off to even recognizing opportunities. There may be things that say, well, you've got to change your goals, adapt what you're doing, be more resilient. 
when you're negative, you don't even necessarily see those things. That there's enough research in there where negativity just closes the door on things that could actually solve your problem. You know, there's a lot of great quotes out there about uh, uh, persistence that too often people give up one step before they would have achieved success. I think it was uh, Emerson who said, you know, we are so near to greatness, one step and we are safe. Can we not make the leap? I mean, he saw this, that people would just give up one step too soon. So one of the things I'm working on now is give everything three more tries, not one more try, but try it one more time to see if it worked. And if it didn't work, why not? Try it one more time because then you, you think you got it right, but maybe you don't. So try it a third time, you know, you know, the old thing, you know, the third time is uh, a charm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, so persistence is not one more step. I think maybe it's three more steps, but, you know, you mentioned about uh, the house and everything, you know, I can take a walk down by the lake and have a positive thought and it's very momentary and fleeting. That's a beautiful house by the lake. I can have a negative thought. That's a beautiful house. I wish I had it, but I don't. But then it becomes detrimental if it goes on to, how did they get that house? How come I don't have that house? What did they do? Did they, did they write an app overnight and now he's worth a billion dollars? Uh, did they inherit money? So it's that positive thought is fleeting. It's so easy to imagine winning the lottery. But try and think about what you're gonna do with that money and it goes pretty quickly. But think about losing your job and you won't sleep for a week. Uh, so, you know, part of yes. it is the way we are. Yes. And you know what, that's another point that you made in your book that I thought was, was just so good and so ripe to get our minds around. We will have a thought when we think about our goal and we can feel it. We can see it. I know what the color is. I know what the size, the shape, I know what it smells like. And then um, that thought I could have for 15 or 30 seconds, but then the negative thought about it, well, I'm never really going to get it. I mean, I know that because it's too hard and it'll take too long. And, you know, then all the negativity takes far longer than the 15 or 30 seconds I devote to being positive about that item. The negativity is powerful if for nothing else than the time spent in the negativity. And, and that's why you're talking about shifting that time to add not 100% because it's not realistic, but more time in that positive thought because the more time you're in the positive thought, the less time you're in the negative thought. You're exactly. just shifting it slightly. Willie Nelson said it. If you replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts, you'll have positive outcomes. Actually, the most practical black and white person in modern history might be Henry Ford. He summed up this whole field of cognitive psychology and stoic philosophy in 10 words. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So whether you think you can or you yeah. think you can't, you're right. What else do you need to know? Oh, how to think you can. So um, uh, yeah, it's an ongoing battle and it's not gonna work for everybody. It won't work for everybody all the time, but it's this matter of, you know, can you increase your probability of success by using things you haven't tried before? I'm curious to know, Rich, 
I'd like to get your take on this media saturated culture of ours. And today we're talking about instantaneous communication. It seems to me watching the political landscape, and it's especially so in election cycles, negativity works. If you're a candidate and you can throw more mud that sticks than the other guy, you stand maybe a 68% chance of winning the election. I mean, maybe, or at any rate, squeaking out a victory because you you came up with those attack ads and that's in the lexicon now come up with the right attack ads. How did we get to the, the place where instead of a chicken in every pot, it's now that guy was colluding with some bad people in the world and you must be afraid of him. And I am the antidote to this person who is unworthy of the office they seek because the people buy into that positivity takes a back seat to the lower instincts and the lower range of thought in human nature. Doesn't that concern you? It concerns me. It concerns everybody who observed us throughout history. This gets back to our negativity bias. We're, you know, we're sensitized to seek out and uh, in the absence of any other information except the negatives, because if I'm forewarned and forearmed, Maybe I'll protect myself, but a positive, what's their deal with the positive? You know, this is kind of, you know, not quite a tangent, but, you know, people have studied the, like I said, the political literature going back, you know, a couple hundred years, and they say, actually, some of it's quite mild compared to what it was a couple hundred years ago, but uh, George Orwell wrote about this, uh, you know, tell a lie big enough and people will believe it. But uh, one of the phrases I remember was from, uh, one of uh, the Nazi leaders, Goebbels, I think it was something like this. He said, first you tell people uh, that something is going to harm them. Then you get them to support you by telling them you're going to save them. So uh, scare people first, then tell them you're going to save them. Uh, that seems to work. You know, How is that going to change? I, I don't know. Uh, there's some interesting writings on that about... Uh, how people can switch gears based on their perspective. Uh, as a fellow named Stephen Brill, he wrote some interesting books about one of these subjects uh, a couple of years ago about how people who had altruistic, beneficial, uh, holistic, uh, progressive ideas, uh, once they got theirs, he said they pulled up the moat, they pulled up the ridge, that they're going to protect what they have. So there's so many things going on here about once I've got mine, I want to keep myself safe. So how much am I willing to extend myself? If you raise a very complex and unfortunately, I don't know where this is going to net out. I keep thinking, is this the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end? One of the things I'm going to, I'm going to quote one line from your book here, because we're talking exactly about that thing. On page 47, you say, history clearly shows that eventually every form of society and government collapsed when the negative forces of power, greed, injustice, and prejudice became the dominant form of civilization. I read that and I just went, wow, negativity will sink you permanently as a culture if you don't find a way to become more positive. And when, you know, we look at the news, it seems pretty dark. 
Yeah, well, two things. One is there's a sociologist, anthropologist, Steven Pinker, who's written about this, uh, tracing the evolution of these kinds of issues. And he says, well, actually things are probably better than they used to be. We're making slow progress. My concern is why do we have such slow progress? If we know better, why can't we elect the right people? Why can't we make the choices? So it seems emotionally, psychologically, we're, we're far behind the wisdom we potentially have, but fail to implement. So maybe we I are have, progress. You know, I've heard that before, Rich, from other people that we've had on that say, if you actually look at the statistics of, you know, people murdered, of all these crimes and all this stuff, they said, if you look at it over a very large span of time, we are improving. And it's as just you said, too slowly, too slowly. We know better. Now so we know better. We, we are improving, but at such a snail's pace and our technology is racing so far ahead of where we are as humans. How can we catch up to the technology? Uh, I've, I've written a couple of blogs about that. I mean, yes, technological uh, advancement is so easy compared to psychological and emotional and societal because we can test it, measure it, put it into work, but human nature, well, that gets back to the, issue of the evolution of psychiatry and psychology. It all started, okay, all science, all the technology was focused on how can we make things better, more productive, more efficient. But the whole study of the, the psyche is all based on, let's investigate what's wrong, the abnormalities, which is fine, but we've never put the same energy into how do we enhance people's productive, positive capabilities. That's really just, you know, like I say, literally 30 years old. Uh, so maybe, you know, the next generation will benefit. But the, the study of positive positivity is, you know, just in its earliest stages. You know, and one of the things, and I, I want to leave our, our the end of this show on a really positive note. We, we don't want to be negative. And that is that you talk about developing that by recognizing positive things that have occurred. We are quick to notice if something negative has occurred. We just missed a parking spot. Somebody gave us a dirty look. We got the wrong change, you know, whatever that is. But in your book, you say, recognize all of your successes all the time because it's like building a muscle so oh my gosh i got a great parking spot here recognize you got that i got the first spot you know after the handicap spot that's great right. if you can if you can if you know i got a, a, a check in the mail on time or i got a compliment at work i actually got a really nice compliment i i got two compliments y yesterday rich when I got the second compliment, it was from a different person at a different time of day, and it was the same compliment. And I went, I got to pay attention to this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to recognize when things are going well, when things are successful, because I think that is a muscle that you can build easily yourself. It's, it's something you can do in the immediate is to every day look and say, well, this went well, and this went well, and this went well. These are all successes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other, you know, professional literature out there. I forgot the, the psychologist's name at Stanford. Uh, you know, it's quite popular in some circles about taking, doing everything in tiny steps, recognizing every little success. But right. 
we dwell and get angry over the few negatives, like person who cut us off, that we take the success for granted. You know, it's like, you know, yes. maybe don't believe it. Uh, you know, you've seen before in red and people told you it takes, you know, 30 to 90 days to build or break, you know, you know a non-addictive habit. Uh, so, you know, as I talk about, try doing the modern positivity approach for, for 90 days. This can change your life. You know, I mean, we give more attention to where to go on vacation than we do to changing our life like this. Yeah. Ain't it the truth? Is the psychologist at Stanford to whom you refer Dr. Albert Bandura? No, no. I think uh, I can't remember his name offhand. Well, one reason why Dr. Bandura is so important is because he proposed social learning theory. And, you know, in terms of positivity, social learning theory might say, monkey see, monkey do. If somebody is making something work very well and they are not possessed of superhuman abilities, see how they do it and imitate them and maybe even improve on it if you can. But this is the experimental phase. This is the ability and the willingness to observe and to see if you can make it work for yourself. That's an act of the will. Yeah, I mean, there's so much out there. I mean, my, my old corporate life, we went through a continuous cycle of you know, employee you know, improvement programs, productivity, efficiency, get people to buy in, meet our goals. And it just went on and on and on. Yeah, there's just so many things you have to do. And so what I try to get down to one principle. I can't cover the whole world, but if you can increase your probability of possibility, positivity just to 68%, have you now entered the, the threshold, the portal, where you can be more successful than you might otherwise have been? We didn't cover nearly the things that we wanted to cover from your book today, Rich. So please tell us you will come back and we will address this once again and talk about your book some more. If you invite, I will return. All right. You heard it. We have a bunch of witnesses. We do. <laughs> the book is Modern Positivity. The author is Richard Spitzer. And we would love to have you back, Rich, anytime. This is good stuff for people who want to make their lives work better. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk to you again. Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate seeing you again. All right. Have a great weekend. We hope the same for all of our listeners. Yes. And at one o'clock Pacific today, stay tuned for American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. We're going to visit a haunted mansion in Las Vegas. That's right. Stay tuned to 1150 AM right here in Seattle. Delighted to have you with us every time, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend and a week beyond that, a positive one. Talk to you soon.